David Foster Wallace. David Foster Wallace said that the truth will set you free, but not until it is finished with you. <laughs> I love that. Oscar Wilde said that the truth is rarely pure and never simple. Today we're going we're gonna to look at truth, which is uh, my view of God's word. Uh, we're going to look at truth uh, that is neither pure nor simple in the information that we have to learn from it or in the things that we glean from it. But before we get into that, I'm going to share a couple of things that I shared last week that I believe are very important. And I want you to take these things to heart, and I want you to engage with them uh, as you are studying uh, Scripture and as you are pursuing your Christian life. The first is this, that the Bible does not hold our hands as uh, we walk through life. It does not hold our hands and walk us through step by step through things. I, I truly wish it did. Right? I wish that the Bible offered us uh, a myriad of practical steps that said, here is exactly what you do, and here's how it works, and here's the result of it, and all of that stuff. But instead, what happens is that we engage with a, a book that is uh, largely philosophic in its nature. Okay, And by philosophic, uh, I mean that what it does is it, it, it offers us uh, the canvas of human life uh, with all that has been painted across it for all the years that we have, we have existed. Um, and it paints a picture of human interactions and, and uh, the ebbs and flows of emotions and, and thought and everything like this. And what it does is it presents us through that story with an ability to become level-headed, to become understanding, to basically become wise by employing the things that we observe and the things that we see. Uh, just yesterday, the first Saturday of every month, we have a men's breakfast, and we hold that at uh, the Bean and Brew in Batavia, and it's an awesome time to just kind of sit and converse and uh, talk with each other about our worlds and about our lives, but also uh, kind of with a bed of scripture kind of leading our conversation, and, and yesterday I was sharing with the guys two what I like to refer to as ditches, two ditches that I believe that Christian men in particular fall into constantly. Um, and then what we did, and, and we fall into that because of the nonsense that we get taught all the time, and what we did was we, we opened scripture and we ran these two ditches, these two philosophical ideas, approaches to life through what the scripture said and its philosophy. And we basically just asked the question repeatedly, is this what it looks like to be a godly man? Right? Is this what it looks like to be a Christian man? And in case you're interested in that, the two ditches that often happen with Christian men are that we either believe that we should be passive men and we blame that on being Christ-like. Jesus wasn't passive, just so you know. Um, we blame it on being Christ-like because we're sweet and gentle and we never stir the pot. Or we believe in schools of thought that make men male chauvinist jerks and we blame that on Jesus because we take Bible passages out of context, right? And so these are two ditches that we fall into. And then all of a sudden we embrace scripture that says things like, blessed are the pure in heart. And you go, hmm, I've never seen a 
toxic man be pure in heart? I've never seen that, right? And so we start analyzing these things. But here is my point in all of this. My point is that when you open Matthew chapter 5 and you read through the Beatitudes, what you do not get is a hand-holding or a step-by-step application for how you should live your life. You hear, blessed are the pure in heart, and it is left to you to discern what in the world pure in heart means. What does that look like, right? Uh, The scripture says, blessed are the meek. Well, what in the world does the word mean? And then how does that apply to our lives? I truly wish the Bible just handed it to you on a silver platter, but it doesn't. And the importance of this is that when you're reading Scripture, you actually have to dig and you actually have to think in order to arrive at understanding, okay? Is that easy? Not even close. (laughs) Not even close. And there's people who disagree on what those things mean or what ideas, uh, you know, are, are true or not. But I want you to understand the Bible does not hold your hand. The second point from last week that is important is that uh, in the skeptical and even antagonistic world that we live in, and I mean skeptical and antagonistic towards God, the world we live in, um, we, we hear a group of people that see the atrocities that we face in life the evil that is perpetrated on all of humanity, and we hear the skeptic and we hear the critic say, where is God when all of this evil happens? If he's good, if he's all-knowing, if he is all-powerful, where is this good God in enacting justice on such wickedness? But from that same skeptical, critical world, We also hear them condemn God as being a jerk and a giant bully when he destroys people from the face of the planet. Do you realize you can't have both? God is either going to be just and do things you don't like, or he's going to do nothing, and then you can criticize all you want, right? But you can't have both. You can't have a soft, loving God who never does anything mean, (laughs) which is a funny interpretation anyway, right? Mean, and then a God who is also just to right wrongs inside of life. So, two things. The Bible doesn't hold our hands. It doesn't walk us through life step by step. There is a lot of understanding that we have to dive for and, and wade through to get, uh, to get how to live. Number two, God is going to be a just God, and the antagonistic world doesn't like it, Okay? So he is going to be a just God. You need to accept what happens. So why do I remind you of these points? Because today we're going to need to remember those and many others uh, as we venture into one of the most complex and challenging stories that we will find in the scripture. Um, Obviously, we're going to be walking through an entire chapter, so I need you to open your Bibles. I need you to, um, to engage with me through whatever, a digital device or, heaven forbid, actual paper. Right, and, and so you engage with me in this, and we're going to be in Genesis chapter 19. We're going to be tempted, though, in this, and this is something that I want to settle everybody on first. We're going to be tempted to look for practical application for our life within this story. And although we may be able to draw it out, I want to caution you from constantly looking at every story in the Bible to find a practical application for your life. 
Sometimes the Bible just tells you a really weird story. It might tell you that really weird story to tell you of a God who redeems really weird stories. Amen? But there are many times when you're not going to glean something from uh, a story in the Bible, especially not weird stuff like we're about to read, okay? So we're not going to necessarily be able to find all of that. We also may be tempted to pass judgment on God's ways or even his words And uh, we may find that we're being far too hasty in doing that when we understand the whole of Scripture, right? Remember, again, what I said at the beginning from David uh, uh, Foster Wallace, the truth will set you free, but not until it's finished with you, okay? You need all of it in order to get there. How many of you know that we are meaning-generating beings, We need to understand things, and so we create meaning out of stuff. We go, oh, I see what that person said. This is clearly what they meant, right? We need everything to mean something in our lives so so that we can feel at peace, I would would say. So this is why, in this sense, we are a meaning-generating being. uh, Sometimes... um, That meaning is well-informed and maybe even easy to determine. For example, uh, we might ask a loved one one why they did something for us to which they respond with, well, I did it because I love you. Those moments are amazing in life. Why did you do this for me? Because I love you. No doubt gets created in your mind, right? You you don't need any other meaning. You're just like, oh, wow, you did this because you love me. That's pretty cool. Is life filled with those times? It's got them. Is it the majority of experiences? I don't know. You'll have to settle this in your life. But I, I wouldn't say that it's been my majority experience. But what do you do when, some, when something is not expressly stated or not emphatically clear? Well, what we do is we generate meaning. I'll give you an example. When somebody texts you um, and you respond to them and their response to your response is a thumbs up, that's your response. You're already giggling because you know what is going on here, right? Their response is a thumbs up. What do you do with that? You generate meaning. You run through your head going, what? What is a thumbs up? Are you literally saying cool? Are you saying Whatever you want, Nathan. Do you know that you can derive both meanings from that? And do you know that the person generates the meaning? And so you derive meaning from what you know of the person, and sometimes you can make up a meaning that's completely wrong. Right? It's just, it's unbelievable. But we are meaning-generating people. As a matter of fact, as I mentioned that example, you're probably working through something in your head going, yeah, yeah, I'll tell you what, Joe just did that to me this week, and I'm going to take it up with him or her, right? You're, you're thinking about this. You're wondering what this means. Well, we do this with everything in life, right? Most likely thousands of times a day. Um, we essentially do this with the Bible every time we're reading it. And just like a text message, we can generate a correct meaning and we can generate an incorrect meaning. We can arrive at correct meanings in, (laughs) Barney, if you thumbs up me in the middle of my sermon one more time, 
I will send you another hand gesture that is not a thumbs up. <laughs> no, I'm just messing with you, right? So to arrive at any kind of correct meaning, what, what happens? It requires humility. When it's required for biblical interpretation, it requires a great deal of humility. It requires us to be um, possibly uh, incorrect in our former views. If you start texting me thumbs up, gentlemen, I'm going to hurt you. I'm telling you what. I see the look on their faces. It's bad. Anyway, see what you start, Barney? So we're going to talk about a very complicated passage of Scripture, and we are going to be generating meaning constantly through this, right? Your baby is generating lots of meaning right now. Yes, she's like, I don't like this sermon. It's okay. Anyway, okay, so we're going to generate meaning as we read this. Carl, mm-hmm. thumbs up from Carl now. Let's just put my number on the screen and let's just get it over with, okay? So anyway, so we're going to look through this passage and we're going to find a lot of meaning in this. But before we do that, let me set the stage for meaning. Let me set the stage, Ryan. Yeah, let me set the stage. Let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. Starting at verse 4, this will set the stage in order for us to help generate meaning. Bob Briggs, I tell you. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, just so you know, angels can sin, um, which is a fascinating concept when it comes to their volition, their will, all of those things, right? For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, obviously Peter thinks that that's a real thing, cast them into hell, and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, verse 5, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, and he brought a flood upon the whole world of the ungodly, or upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, this is the context that we need to remember, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example for those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, context, sensual conduct of unprincipled men, verse 8, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds, verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Keep this in mind. Righteous Lot, who was vexed, some translations say, by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. He was living among them, but his soul was tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. And in this beautiful line, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation rescue the godly from temptation and keep the unrighteous under punishment. With that, we start into Genesis 19. Fascinating story. 
So what we know already is that Abraham has just done this kind of conversing with his friend. He has talked with God and he has said, if there's 40 in the, in the city that are righteous, will you spare the city? And if there's 35 and if there's 30 and if there's 25, and make no mistake, Abraham is not negotiating with God. Abraham is simply wondering And he has a legitimate question in his mind, although he is a friend of God. Will you destroy the righteous with the wicked? And we think this a lot. We look at our world and we see see people get punished and you go, but why do the righteous, why do those who trust in the Lord face these kinds of afflictions? And so Abraham has asked God this uh, through this series of questions. You remember last week he was, he was a very uh, quick person to, to trust God and to be hospitable to God. And in his approach to God, he understood himself rightly. He was a friend of God. But he understood that he's made of ash and dust. He understood that he is not anything really to be asking such questions, that he is a servant of God. Make sure we keep this in our minds at all times. You can be a friend of God and you can be a saint, but you will always need to be humble enough to realize you are but dust and a servant of the Most High. It's not a problem. It's not a problem. It's actually quite a beautiful thing if we'll keep our humility intact, right? And so Abraham has done this negotiation, we like to think, but he's just simply pleading with God that he wouldn't, checking that he wouldn't destroy the righteous with the wicked. And so he goes down to 10, and at verse 32 and 33 of the last chapter, he says, then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak once more. What if only 10 can be found there? And he answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. Verse nine, chapter 19. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. A gateway of a city is not just a location that somebody's hanging out, okay? So just make sure we understand this. This was definitely a place where, of course, trade could happen, but this in in the ancient Near East was uh, most surely a place from which Uh, issues were dealt with, judgments were passed down, all of these things. And we'll come back to that in a second. But Lot is sitting in the gate, okay? And these men, these angels, these men uh, come, right? When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. Now, right away, he, he meets them with a reverence just like that of Abraham. Okay, which is akin to Abraham. Now, just because there are deviations in how Lot does it and how Abraham does it, this has led people to generate meaning. They need to generate meaning. We need to generate meaning. And so what happens in a lot of sermons and a lot of write-ups on Genesis 19, uh, in a lot of commentary, what you have is that there is, there is by derived meaning or by created meaning from deriving the text, uh, they, people will come to the conclusion that all of these stories were supposed to compare Abraham and Lot. They were supposed to compare a faithful servant of God to Lot. But there's a challenge with this, and the challenge is what we read in Second Peter. Who does Peter say that Lot is? A righteous man. Does Peter qualify the type of righteousness that Lot had 
No, he doesn't. And you know how many scholars do this? They go, well, what we mean by righteous is that comparatively, he was more righteous than Sodom. All I'm pointing out to you is that's generating meaning. You're generating meaning from a text. Can you prove that? Not on your life. Can't prove that, right? As a matter of fact, what we learn from Lot is that he's vexed in his soul because of the people there. I'm seeing a guy who doesn't like his hometown, who doesn't like where he's residing, okay? But we generate meaning. This is what we have to do, right? So, and, and trust me, my generation of meaning is not me saying that I'm correct. But listen, listen to what this story does. So Lot's in the gateway of the city when, the, when he saw them, and he gets up to meet them, and he bows down with his face to the ground. And we can parallel this with Abraham and the Lord before. He says, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house. In other words, come, let me be hospitable to you. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. You know who said the exact same thing? Abraham, just a chapter before. He said, why don't you stay for a while since, Lord, you've come to visit me. You've, you've, you've paid me this visit. Let me take care of you. Let me get some water so that you can wash your feet. Abraham doesn't necessarily uh, offer to wash them for him. So he's offering the same thing. And he even says the same thing. And when you're done, you can go on your way. Okay, that wasn't a push him out kind of thing, okay? Now, there's times when people come to my house. I'm like, hey, let me get you some water for your feet and let me hurry you along, right? <laughs> right? But this, that's not the goal here by him saying, you can go on your way when time's up, right? He's just simply saying, you have an agenda, you have a mission, you have something, right? Verse 2, my lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered. We will spend the night in the square. This seems to be, meaning generation here, but this seems to be almost a test for Lot. What is Lot going to do? Well, first of all, Lot's already invited them into his home, and they say, no, they're going to do this. So what is Lot able to do right now? He's able to tell them the messed up nature of his town, right? He says, it says in verse 3, but, in, but he instead so strongly, but he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and enter his house. So he is stressing something. What is it? Apparently, during the dark hours of the night, the people of Sodom did wicked things, and if you were in the town square, you would be violated, you would be hurt, okay? So he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, same thing Sarah did, and they ate. Now, how does an angel eat? I don't know, but that sounds awesome, right? Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. Okay, this is where we get into the sticky part of the story, and it doesn't end well either, right? And so what I'm just prepping you for is that you're going to have to generate meaning. You're going to try to put pieces together, and you're going to come to conclusions. What I want you to do is make sure that your conclusions are, are correct or that they're the most plausible conclusions of something, okay? So he insisted strongly. They follow him. Before they had gone to bed, all the men of every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. Then they called to Lot, 
Where are the men who came to you tonight? Here's a meaning generation. Bring them out to us so that we may know them. Now, my translation just goes ahead and puts the meaning in there, right? And that meaning is bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. We just went from PG-13 all the way to rated R, right? And so he says, this is, these men say, this is what we want to do. Why do we derive meaning from the word no this way? Why do we generate meaning? Because when we look to other texts, we see that Abraham knew his wife Sarah, right? Which means he had sex with his wife, right? Now, there are many instances in the Old Testament where the word no just simply means get to know. But we're going to see in a little bit that the contrast here proves the meaning that these interpreters have generated, okay? It means that these men wanted, this crowd wanted to violate these men and have sex with them, okay? So we go on, verse 6. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Now listen, this is where we generate the meaning and this is where we also dive straight into the pits of chaos. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under my, the protection of my roof. Is that some Kentucky crap for you? Okay, right? Sorry, that was, Barney's like, I'll hurt you. Anyway, okay. Actually, he's from Tennessee. He's fine. It's the Steffens that might be enraged. I apologize in advance. Okay, so here we go, right? So right away, he says, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. By the comparison, what does get to know these men mean? Having sex with them. Sometimes you can generate meaning with a high level of assurance. Okay? And sometimes you're generating meaning, and the best you got is that just makes sense to you. Okay? Just be careful with that when it comes to interpreting Scripture, okay? So he says, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you like with them. Now, let's jump back to 2 Peter. What do we do with Lot here? It, how many of you, by a show of hands, would say, that's messed up, Nathan? Thank you, because if your hand's not raised, that's messed up, right? Okay, so this is a messed up situation, and we go, what is going on here? How many of you know that you can be a righteous person the way God counts righteousness? How did it say uh, Abraham was counted as righteous in the previous chapter, in the previous chapters? By faith. He believed God. How many of you know by the experience of your life that you can make royal mistakes even though you trust and believe in God? Yeah, this is a massive mistake. This is a massive mistake, right? What? Yeah. This is a massive mistake. When you laughed at that, I thought, they're all going to hell. Anyway, <laughs> this is a massive mistake and you chuckle at this? How dare you? Anyway, okay, thumbs up, got it, we're good there, okay. So, 
Lot goes outside and he offers this. Now, here is another thing that we have to think about when we're trying to understand ancient texts. How many of you understand that hospitality is a very important thing in the Bible? How many of you understand that in the ancient Near East, it was far more important than you can imagine? So important that when you brought somebody into your house, that line about they're under your protection meant that if it cost you your life to protect them, that's what you paid. This is hospitality. Listen, guys, I'll invite you over for coffee. I ain't dying for you, okay? Right? That's just weird to me, okay? But this is the level of hospitality. Does that give Lot's actions... uh, a seal of approval of God. No. It's just some twisted nonsense. What could we surmise as we generate meaning? We could surmise that Lot is influenced by his culture. We could surmise that. I can't prove it. I would just simply say that the same righteous man who was vexed in his soul because of what did we read in Second Peter? Who was vexed in his soul because of the sensuality of these people, right? Of the ungodliness of these people. Let me look at the exact text. What he saw and heard, that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. This is who we're talking about. That righteous lot also does this. And that's some, that's some messed up stuff. You're not going to derive a practical application here. I mean, maybe don't offer your daughters to strangers, right? But none of you were struggling with that, I hope, (laughs) right? We're not going to drive a a meaning. What we're seeing is the canvas of life being painted with the good colors and the ugly colors. And this painting's messed the heck up, okay? So we move on and we go, what does Lot do here? Why is he doing this? Verse 8, look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you. And you can do what you like with them, but don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Verse 9, get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner. They're speaking of Lot right now. This fellow came here as a foreigner, and now he wants to play the judge. Where was he sitting at the beginning of the story? Sitting at the city gate. Was it under their approval? Who knows? But they don't seem to be happy that he has established himself as a judge. And they don't like what he is negotiating with them. Okay? So this man has set himself up to play judge. We'll treat you worse than them. Okay, they wanted to violate the men already, the angels. And now they're threatening him to treat him worse than they... they, Worse, right? They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But then the men inside, these angels, reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so that they could not find the door. You want to know what the wrestle that you're going to have with reading the scripture is here? The same wrestle that the skeptic has. The same wrestle that the skeptic has when they say, if God is good, if God is all-powerful, if God is all-knowing, why doesn't he enact justice? 
you're going to ask the question, if you're a thinking person, and all of you are, you're going to say, why didn't the angels just strike the men with blindness before Lot goes offering his daughters? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe to reveal the heart of Lot. Maybe to show that even a man who is righteous by faith is still a sinner. Just like you and just like me. Who are nothing else than saved by sheer grace and mercy. It's a, it's a hard story, guys. It gets worse. Yippee, right? The two men said to Lot, do you have anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anything else in the city who belongs to you, get them out of here because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry of the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. That negotiation or that ask of Abraham to find out if God would destroy the righteous with the unrighteous, what was God's answer? The answer is he would never destroy the righteous with the unrighteous. He would never do so, right? Would he deliver 10? He would. Is he finding 10? Not so much, right? This is meaning generation. This is what we have to do when we're reading the text of Scripture. The outcry against the people is so great that it is that he has sent us to destroy it. Verse 14. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were pledged to marry his daughters. It could have been those virgin daughters based on this translation. Other translations put it a different way with its, with its tense. And so it could be that Lot had other daughters. Again, meaning, meaning generation. He said, hurry and get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But look what happens when he goes and preaches repentance, righteousness through faith and trusting God. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. Same thing happened to Noah when he was a preacher of righteousness, and the world didn't care. So they thought he was joking. There are scholars who, who, who uh, assert that maybe uh, that negotiation, if you will, of 10 people from Abraham was that if you count up Lot's full family, including sons-in-laws, there were 10, and so he would have spared it, but they didn't respond, and so then he destroys it. I don't know that you can get there, but that is meaning generation, right? But his sons-in-laws thought he was joking. Verse 15, with the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here. That's what makes us think he didn't have other daughters, or it's just the two daughters that were in the house, meaning generation, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. What is the city enduring? Punishment and judgment. Punishment and judgment, not a fickle God that just wants to throw hailstones, right? Verse 16, when he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. Now we're going to contrast here in just a second Lot's hesitation with his wife's turning back. Because we have to generate meaning. We have to generate meaning because there's actual results of something that happens. So he hesitates and the angels go, nope. They grabbed his hand and they grabbed everybody's hand and they ran. As soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, flee for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere in the plain. 
Flee to the mountains, or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, not a time for negotiation, Lot. No, my lords, please, your servant has found favor. If your, your servant has found favor in your eyes, this sounds just like Abraham, and you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life, your servant, you see the parallel there, but I can't flee to the mountains. No explanation, just I can't. This disaster will overtake me and I'll die. Maybe that's the understanding, right? Something. Verse 20, look here is a town near enough to run to and it is small. Let me flee to it. It's very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. What do we surmise in meaning there? It might be that Lot said, let me go to this small town. It can't be as corrupt. It can't influence me or my family as much, but we will find safety. This is all just the way we generate meaning, right? He said to them, very well, I will grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of. Sounds like he had a list of towns he was about to do, meaning generation. But flee there quickly because I cannot do anything until you reach it. That is why the town was called Zoar. By the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus, he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, or maybe multiple, and also the vegetation in the land. Why add that in there? Total destruction. He is going to purge the place. But Lot's wife looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Now, when you guys buy salt from the Middle East, you might be getting Lot's wife a little bit. No, I'm, not, I'm, I'm joking, right? Here, here, but here is the deal. Lot's wife looks back, and yet earlier Lot hesitated. Lot is taken by the hand, and she's turned into a pillar of salt. What do we do with that? Well, we're meaning-generating people, so we generate meaning. And what we do is we look other places in the Scripture, and we look at things like Jesus who says, if you set your hand to the plow uh, and look back, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. Okay? So there is something in the meaning of her looking back from what's going on. Okay? There is not anything derived in the, he hesitated. How many of you hesitate when God asks you to do something? All of us do, and he doesn't strike us dead day to day, right? So it looks like the first one, generating meaning, is that Lot and his family were like, wait a second, this is our town. Maybe we can plead with you. But that hesitation was met with, hold my hand, we're going. When she looked back, the implication is, the meaning generation is, she longed for the city that they were fleeing from. Now, this is going to make a little bit of sense if this is true. Again, we're just putting things together and generating meaning. It's going to make a little bit of sense for the weirdness that happens now. Verse 27, early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to his place where he had stood before the Lord, sipping his coffee. He looks down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, and all he sees is smoke. And he looks up at God and says, guess there weren't ten. No, that's not what he says. Okay. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the... You guys thought that was in the Bible for a second. Toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land, like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot 
out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. Do you want to know what generation of meaning you might derive from here? God saved Lot because he remembered Abraham. It may in fact be that God saves you because he remembers his son. Because you and I are both, we're all sinners. We may be friends of God, we may be redeemed, we may be saints, but we still make plenty of mistakes. But on a promise, God remembers his servant, his faithful servant, and he remembers us. Just maybe a meaning that we might generate. Now for the weirdness. Lot and his two daughters left Zoar and settled in the mountains. For goodness sakes, Lot, pick a place. My goodness. For he was afraid to stay in Zoar. Why do you think he was afraid? Generate some meaning. The last place he stayed ended up blown up. <laughs> okay? So maybe the city was more wicked than he thought. Maybe it was polluted. I don't know. Meaning generation, right? Lot and his two daughters left Zoar, settled in the mountains, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar. He and his two daughters lived in a cave. Now, the meaning I surmise from that is that Lot goes to Zoar, he sees the same wickedness that was in Sodom that vexed his soul there, and he realizes, the angels told me to go to the mountains to begin with, I'm better off doing what they say. That's just my opinion, right? I'm just generating meaning. That's what we do, right? Verse 31. One day, the older daughter said to the younger. Now, we're definitely just, we just drove straight into Kentucky here, okay? Straight in. One day, the older daughter said to the younger, our father is old and there is no man around here to give us children. As it is custom, all over the earth to give children, not the next piece, right? Let's get our father to drink wine and then sleep with him and preserve our family line through our father. That night, they got their father to drink wine, and their older daughter went in and slept with him. He was not aware of it when she laid down or when she got up. What are we supposed to surmise from that? Number one, if this was righteous, Lot wouldn't needed to have been drunk to do it. Yes? You don't have to get the guy drunk. Number two, you're going to have to get him really drunk because he can't remember the in or the out. I didn't mean that in a picturesque way, right? <laughs> Sorry. Deal with it, right? He can't remember that. You guys love me so much. It's just unbelievable, right? So, and the funny part is, is that my face doesn't get red for that. It's just funny, but I didn't mean that, so it's okay. As the custom all over the earth, they get their father drunk. That night, she goes in. She lays with him. He doesn't even know she's there. Verse 34. The next day, the older daughter said to the younger, last night, I slept with my father. You're bragging about this? Let's get him to drink wine again tonight, and you go in and sleep with him so we can preserve our family line through our father. I do want you to realize there are some times in which people are doing something that seems noble and righteous, but they go about it a wrong way. And this is an example of that, okay? Meaning generation. Verse 35, so they got to their, fa their father to drink wine that night also, and the younger daughter went in and slept with him. Again, he was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. Clear picture, he was wasted on this. 
Verse 36. So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The older daughter had a son, and she named him Moab, the Moabites. He is the father of the Moabites of today. The younger daughter also had a son, and she named him Ben-Ammi. He is the father of the Ammonites of today. The Moabites and the Ammonites become enemies of Israel because, truth be told, this entire plan is born in sin and brokenness. It happens. The canvas is there. The ugly paint and the beautiful paint is all present. And we have to look at it and generate some meaning. And sometimes there's no practical application. It's simply a story that goes, ooh. But in that ooh of the story, we also see the frailty of man. We see the brokenness that sin leads to. We see the effects of a culture on a people. I know, all of this is just me generating meaning from what I read from this text. So, they have this whole thing and they create enemies of God. What are we supposed to do with this unbelievable story? Well, one, we could go into a deep, deep conversation about the fact that these men wanted to have sex with the two angels that came to town that were identified as men, and we can talk about the fact that Sodom is synonymous with the term sodomy, and that God has and always will think that homosexuality is wrong. We could talk about that. People today don't want to talk about that. They don't want to talk about it. As a matter of fact, I can see on some faces that are going, oh, crap, we were going good. Let's just end this with the weird incest story, right? No, let's deal with the thing that's actually accepted. That's one thing that we have to deal with. But is there an express statement in that text that says that that's what God wants us to take away from it? No. But what we do is we collect all the other texts of Scripture and we generate meaning, right? Because guess what's amazing about truth truth will set you free but not until it's finished with you not until you see all of it right so we could look at homosexuality we could look at the lewdness and the the unbelievable nature of these people in Sodom and Gomorrah we could look at the effects that they have on Lot's daughter and Lot's wife Lot's daughters and Lot's wife she looks back obviously she's looking back because she longs for something that's wicked She is judged for that. We can generate that meaning. And we could say something practical, I suppose, by saying, listen, when God calls you out of your sin, don't look back on it lovingly, but guess where that goes? That's more of a philosophy that says, I don't know what your issue is. But the principle is don't don't go back, right? Don't run back. We can also look at incest as a problem. We can look at all manner of things. But what I would love for you to do is I'd love for you to sometimes read the text of Scripture and go, gosh, humanity's ugly. Humanity's ugly. But what I know of God is that he is good, he is righteous, and that everything he does is just the same. Everything God does is good and righteous. Whatever the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah, God hated them. He blows the place up. Right? He hated them. He didn't want anything about these sins to continue in life. How do, we, how do we walk this line in a skeptical culture that gets mad at us for telling what 
for thousands of years, church, nobody misinterpreted the Bible that God thought homosexuality was wrong. Nobody misinterpreted it. They disagreed with it, but they didn't misinterpret it. What do we do with a culture that just changes the meaning? What do we do with a culture that when you say something like that, all of a sudden you're bad? Well, here's what I would suggest you do. You don't be one of the two men or women that I mentioned before in those ditches that we talked about in men's group yesterday. You don't be so passive, you never stand for what is true. And you don't be so arrogant and pushy and bossy that you condemn someone that God offers salvation and rescue to. There is a narrow way to walk, and it's terribly difficult, right? What we get from this picture, what we get from this story, is that life is a messy canvas, and God is a just God, and a loving God, and a redeeming God. And if that doesn't make you joyful, you're wanting more out of the Bible than it's trying to give you at times. Sometimes the Bible is just telling you your God is just and he is good. And that should be enough to walk away from church and go, I'll rest in him on that. Do you have some practical steps to walk away with today? I don't know. You probably generated some meaning for it. And what I would say to you is test it through Scripture and walk in it. That's what I would tell you. But what I want to leave you with is that God is just and God is good. God is just and God is good. He redeems those who trust Him. He judges those who reject Him. God is just and God is good. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the day that you have given to us. For the blessings of your word. Father, even those stories which are confusing or challenging or deeply strange. I ask, Lord, that you would allow each and every one of us to take heart in the fact that you are just and you are good. That how we walk out this life and how we navigate sin and unrighteousness how we negotiate uh, or how we navigate the, a story that is supposed to warn those who are wicked that you are just. I pray that you would help us navigate it well. I pray that you would help us navigate it with love and compassion and grace to people. I pray that we would never look on any person in this world as though they are a type of sinner that we are not. I pray that you would show us First, how broken we are. And secondly, how much you love a world to call it to repentance and to call it to life. Father, send us into that world. Send us into that world equipped with understanding and with mercy ever present. We love you, Lord. We praise you for all that you do. In Jesus' great name, amen.